0: Welcome to Narratives of Asia. This episode is part of a collaboration between UCL African Conference and UCL Asiatic Affairs, where students and professionals gather around the table to connect and talk about Asia Africa relations, specifically through the lens of China's influence and the impact on Africa. In this collaboration, We seek to open constructive conversations on geopolitics and history that tie the two continents together. Hello everyone and welcome back to Narratives of Asia. I'm Karine, a second-year European Social and Political Studies student and I'll be your host for today. Joining me today as we continue our conversation on development in Africa is Angela, my co-host, who is also a second-year European Social and Political Studies student. In our previous episode, we had the pleasure of meeting Doris Okenwa, co-author of Land, Investment and Politics, Reconfiguring Eastern Africa's Pastoral Drylands, and also current staff member of UCL Anthropology Department, who introduced to us her research in the Turkana County, northern Kenya, and more widely, the main themes of investment and development in Africa. Engaging further with the theme of ethical capitalism and corporate social responsibility, in this episode, we turn towards cultural and demographic tensions evidenced between social sets in Africa, assessing further the role that they play in reaching goals of resource permanency and their impact on the future of development in Africa. Yeah, I think when you mentioned the corporate social responsibility portion, it definitely reminded me of the blog post that you wrote about global investment in dryland eastern Africa and how in Turkana a lot of the tensions tensions do crop up around all investors and these corporations uh kind of curry favoring with the communities and stemming a lot of the resistance that comes from the potential backlash from these communities as well and how it just creates an asymmetric power relation. So I kind of wanted to talk about how uh, what are exactly these impacts of the corporate social responsibility are on uh, concepts such as belonging entitlements and inclusion and whether it is a fair or unfair trade for these communities to give up these ideas of inclusion and belonging for uh, what they perceive as more practical benefits like new infrastructure
1: wow that's a lot in terms of a black and white answer but yeah, um, fair question I don't think um, development can rise beyond how it was presented, right? So if you define development, if you introduce development, whatever kind of development as a particular thing to a particular um, community, then it cannot rise above that. And if ideas of developments have been shaped over time by specific um, things, projects, then it becomes very hard to go around it. So, oil was introduced, for example, um, or much of this. We have lapsets happening, a a huge corridor project, you know, also happening in Kenya, or whether it's wind power and big agricultural products and, and all that project. It's often introduced as. Again, economic growth, right? And economic—how? What is a tangible? These are abstract terms, you know. So you need concrete stuff to 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 trade and bargain. It's called the social license to operate, you know. You need concrete, concrete things to negotiate with, and those concrete things often come down to, you know, jobs, opening up the space, building up the dry land, building up the environment, you know, businesses, opportunities, and the trickle-down effect. So that is often the introduction. And then when people take you at your word, you then have a counter narrative saying unrealistic expectations. You know, that you know, people have unrealistic expectations from investors, but that is how this project, that is how development was introduced. Those were the tangible benefits that were, you know, tangible benefits that were promised. Now, if you take the oil company, for example, one thing I argued in my work is for us to see the oil company as a broker. So the image of the oil company is this villain, you know, this big um, behemoth, you know, this huge corporation that is faceless, doing things, pulling strings, and all that. You know, in the case of Tolo, the oil company that has been um, prospecting in Turkana, it is what is classified in the oil industry as a junior company. So it's a it's a prospecting company, and they work in you know parts of Africa, you know, doing the groundwork, laying the groundwork that big the big names wouldn't touch you know and then when they make a new road and all they could sell their blogs they could you know partner with the bigger firms and all that but they they do the they do the groundwork and that is their unique selling point right we go where nobody wants to go we go into the difficult places we discover things we negotiate we make it happen we build up the discovery build up the project and you know take it from there so it's a broker, it, it, it's it's a kind of brokerage, right? So you, if you begin to imagine the old company as a hustler, it becomes, um, well, easier in a sense to look at it for what it is. Oftentimes in the literature and the narrative on brokerage, you know, particularly in Africa, you have the picture of the chief, the gatekeepers, you know, and all that stuff. But the oil company is also building itself to be a gatekeeper, right? So in this region, we have expertise in this region. We are the gatekeepers into the resources of this region. You know, we can negotiate with the locals or we have negotiated with them. We have, you know, sorted out licenses with the government. We have sort of taken over um, this place and know how to make um, investments happen. And so the picture I'm trying to paint is that on the ground, it's like a day-to-day struggle, a day-to-day negotiation, you know, between the communities and various social sets, various economic interests, various ideas, of different people you know within a very heterogeneous community even though yes they might share cultural ideals and all that it's this day to day negotiation this pull and push between the old company brokering its way in and the community various sects of the community brokering their way in as well so each trying to negotiate their place negotiate their way and the common denominating factor is this resource you know, of course, in terms of power relations, when you look at money, access, influence, the company looms larger. You know, but it, it's a, it's a bit more um, it's a bit more complex than it's a bit more complex than that. And m- development is time, particularly in this context. You know, you have a period of time where this happens, and people are aware of it. In two thousand and sixteen, for example, there was a global glut, a global oil glut, and then you know the market was challenged and the oil company stops its production along with that when jobs you know so there was a boom in the global market but, uh, sorry there was a bust in the global market but there was also a bust um down in the community again the trickle down effects can be good but also bad you know and after that when exploration activities and um you know all the oil activity started again people were keen to make the most of what they can before there is another bust and we've seen different cycles of booms and busts even in even in Turkana so the shape of the the shape of the project the way it's been introduced the scope of the project determine how both the companies and the communities negotiate their place and try to get the most you know of what um, of what they can
2: Yes, and just um briefly going off that uh what you just mentioned um and i re- I'm really liking this analogy of um development as like a, a brokerage as a hustler um but my question was um every you mentioned in this broad community where everyone is negotiating for a place um with regards to with the domination of with the, the dominator of um, resources then how does gender and age sort of um play a role in this and my question was kind of what impact does um generational and gender um, differences have on developments in Africa, and if you know to what extent are these differences um, detrimental to the impact of development of the benef- of the um, benefits of development to Africa, and how and if possible, can we reconcile these differences?
1: Um, so you would always have these generational tensions, right? You um, not just not just tensions in terms of generational um, age, the age group, the demography. You also have gender, as you've mentioned, but you also have um, you know, social sets, right? You also have, take take for example, people that have gone to school, right? Have a formal education, because I don't like to use the word educated people. You know, the fact that you've gone to school doesn't make you any more educated than someone else that has. And maybe it's a different kind of knowledge. It's, it's a different, um, it's a different kind of exposure. So I'd say formal education. So people that have had a formal education, um, but come from a pastoralist background, right? Um. It's a challenge that they don't want to go back to it, so their sense of development will be very different, right? Meanwhile, for the core pasture, really, the idea of development might be anything that helps them restock the herd, and what the youth, what young people would want, their, their sense of development could be very different from you know, what, the older, um, what the older generation within a, a community you know, would want. Now, in terms of gender, if we look at the specific example of my field site, you have this idea that traditionally negotiations are done with men. But sometimes how it's managed is in general settings, in general, um it's called community sensitization meeting or community engagement meetings that would say happen in town, you have you know you have women speaking, but it often appears tokenistic, right? So you have the women's group, women's leader, cheer lady, and all that. You know, but there is this general over Overarching idea that you know it's the men, and that it's cultural, but that also tells us how culture is a very flexible uh, concept. You know, you pick and choose depending on how on the context, right? So there are there are things, for example, that women are considered good for. So you have a situation where um women are used to mobilize a lot i remember a cheer lady um you know complaining bitterly to me that you know the men would often tell them yeah go and share the news with the market women mobilize if if they want to protest against the company or against a particular process you know women are often encouraged to mobilize but when a benefit emerges from that you know they are sidelined and then again, in terms of jobs, you have the argument that oh, all work is a male-dominated thing, right? You know, how many women have the expertise or the physical um, power to work in rigs and all that? But women have had to fight their way, you know, that's the gender dynamic, like, you know, give us something and there is, sometimes it comes after the fact, right? Like, okay, maybe we we'll just um, give women some contract for vegetable um, supply or you know, one thing or the other. So, yes, the the gender dynamics is very, very, very unbalanced, you know. But you have younger women, you know, more than the older women, actually being more assertive, you know. So I call this um, inclusion by assertion. And this cuts across, um, that's a very interesting thing in in Trukana, where across... um, across each age group across social sets you have people asserting you know they're asserting their rights or their sense of rights or their sense of a rightful share you know so groups of interest begin to merge and it's a change from what you had previously like age groups and all that well not a change maybe a, a a different um a transformation or transition of it you know age groups that um, unite among a common cause, you have that emerging in new forms, right? You know, people that feel they share similar interests, a group of drivers will band together and, you know, assert themselves, protest and find a way to negotiate for themselves. And, you know, sometimes they break through. You know, but again, that is um, the point of some tensions because you find that after a while, people go like, oh, I'm not interested in that. That is just for the drivers. They are fighting for their rights. It's not going to benefit me, you know? And then you have different groups, you know, trying to stake a claim in one um, in one way or, or another. And for me, I think it's good. I mean, I'm all for community speaking with one voice. But you know, one voice, unity, solidarity is all. It, it sounds good. It sounds warm. Um, in principle. But how, how, like James Ferguson asked in his book, um, Rightful Share, you know, give a man a fish, how does this narrative of let everybody, all citizens, share the wealth of a nation? How? How do you do that? Is it universal um, credit? Is it you give it? I mean, what exactly um, is it when you talk about participation and inclusion, you call a meeting under a tree or in a town hall and give everybody a voice like whose voice? You know, there would always be the loudest. There would also be different, always be different ideas, you know. So um, sometimes it's this sometimes is the only way I'm not saying in terms of protests and roadblocks, but, you know, different groups showing agency and making uh, a name for themselves and refusing to be subsumed into the, you know, this general broad narratives, you know, of everyone. But at the end of the day, it's really nobody, but it is some people, you know,
0: yeah, I think when you mentioned about how there are new groups emerging and appearing with their own goals and their own aims and set and how they want to stake a claim um, in Africa, it kind of reminded me on earlier when you mentioned about uh, renewable energy, about the wind farms and solar farms as well. So I was wondering... Ah, uh, whether renewable energy can be seen as a permanent or an impermanent development, and how uh, where African countries stand in terms of renewable energy as well.
1: I think renewable energy has pros, pro, um, prospects, but <clears throat> I think a, a project or a development becomes impermanent based on its its conception and its execution, right? You know, based on how it's how it is framed, based on what the motivation for it is the gists of it, of renewable energy right now is, you know, Africa's green energy transition is the way forward and all that, which, you know, in, in many ways it is, you know, we're seeing um, collaborations and projects from UNDP, from the, um, what's it called now, International Renewable Agency, uh, and all that, you know, making inroads and, you know, pushing for funding in that di- direction. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, failing technology costs, you know, have made re- renewable energy a cost-effective way to generate power in countries all over the world, especially so-called uh, developing countries. And the number of Africans that, you know, still do not have access to electricity, you know, is a lot. And this, of course, affects any kind of digital transformation or techn- technological, um, you know, improvement. But the thing is ownership, right? This idea that Africa is going to leapfrog, you know, directly into renewable um, energy sources away from coal, away from oil and gas is not going to happen um as fast or as easily as it's been um, propounded. Yes, we've seen improvements with like communication, like cellular technology and all that. We've seen a lot of improvements, a lot of um, giant strides taken in that regard. But I think the challenge really is governance. We'll always come back to that. You know, it comes down to governance. It comes down to, you know, ownership of how how these renewable projects are Shall we say executed? Because if you notice the same kind of challenges, albeit in new forms, often emerge. We had it with the broad international development um, sector, if you like, I like to call development an industry because it is. And then you have it with, uh, you know, natural resources. You have it with, uh, even in this era of ethics, you still have it with the extractive industry, you know, the social impact problems and, and biggest political economic um, challenges, you know. So what is happening now, again, because renewable energy, you would still have the land constraints, right? So you have the largest um, wind power project in a, a part of Trucana, right, where, Issues of marginalization and um, land grabs and community agitations, you know, are still happening, right? So these projects are not um are not without consequences right they're not without i mean look at what happened with the palm oil revolution is it in mexico or in latin american countries you still have this very huge inequalities and huge social impacts that you know emerged that emerged from it i think in principle you know it's the way to go in principle it's going to be a very transformative um, development. But I think it will take a while, you know, and I think it's, it still needs some working out. And I don't think it's just going to be a question of um, external investment, I think it's something that African governments need to also own, right, you know, so that we don't have the same narrative and process of excellent investors coming in and we face the same um, challenges or old problems in you know a new in a, in a new form. so I think ownership is very very important and you know focused but oil and gas and existing you know, fossil fuel is still is still going to be dominant for some years to come but it's picking up and there are prospects but it will take a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think
2: that um, what you mentioned about ownership was really interesting, because it just reminds me of, uh, I guess, the whole discourse about African agency and kind of taking control. Um, And I think this relates back really well to the other episodes that we've recorded as part of the series, when we talked about um, methods and mechanisms that we can reconcile these differences between uh, Chinese foreign investment, and then um, the developments happening on the ground, and the impacts of development happening in Africa. Um, And Sadly, unfortunately, um, that's all that we've had really had time for today, but we've managed to cover a lot of ground in terms of both going looking at the background and the main themes of development, um, kind of disenchanting the main assumptions about economic hope and about um, about how development um, promises um, economic growth. But that's not always the case. It's not always a linear relationship. Um, and then moving on to talk about um, marginalisation of communities. And then also what, what I personally found really interesting was the whole concept of um, ethical capitalism. And then we moved on to talk about like um, about corporate corporate responsibility um, and looking at the future and looking at um, renewable energy. I think that's really great that you shared with us your thoughts on the future and what your thoughts are on the future of investment in Africa.
1: Thank you for having me. It's really been a a great time talking about uh, my work and sharing ideas about development in Africa and all the attendance issues thereof. So thank you. Thank you so much, Doris,
0: for coming on to our podcast. We really appreciate you coming on. And Angela and I really learned a lot more about Africa's background in terms of financial investments and the relationship between corporations and the communities and the state. As well as the differences between permanent development and impermanent development. So, uh, we, really, we really think that this could be a good episode for all our listeners to learn more about Africa's development uh, and more. This episode also concludes a mini series collaboration between UCL Africa Conference and UCL Asiatic Affairs on China Africa relations. Stay tuned for another NOA episode. <music> Thank you all listeners for tuning in to this episode of Narratives of Asia. Dear listener, if you found this episode to be educational and learned something from this, do recommend this podcast to your friends and family by word of mouth or on social media. Tag us at UCL Asiatic Affairs on Instagram or Facebook. We would love to hear all of your thoughts on this episode. If you are interested in joining us on Raising Conversation about a certain topic related to Asia, Don't be shy. Drop a message on our social media or email us at uclasiaticaffairs at gmail.com. I swear we're a cool bunch. Again, thank you so much for staying with us and stay tuned for another episode. We are Asiatic Affairs and this is Narratives of Asia.